Hi, good evening and welcome to Resistance TV. My name is Sean Bloor and I'll be your host for this evening. Uh, tonight we're joined again by Rod Driver for our latest installa installation on Elephant in the Room. And tonight we're going to be talking about U the US and British human rights abuses. Um, so uh, the mainstream media give the impression that other countries commit human rights abuses and that the US and Britain don't. Um, but this is incorrect. The US has the worst human rights record in the world and Britain participates in many of these abuses. Um, indeed, there's um, reports coming out of Ukraine um, about uh, MI6, our very own intelligence agency, who are have been very deeply involved in um, the, the, the run up to the war in, in the Ukraine. So I'd like to welcome Rod. Good evening, Rod. Good evening. Thanks for having me on the hi, show. Hi, hi. Uh, very welcome back to, to you. I hope you're well this evening. And uh, I'm going to hand over to you and um, I'll be chatting to people in the chat room as well as uh, Lizzie's going to be moderating this evening. Um, so if you would like to add, ask Rod a question, please pop it into the comment section and uh, we'll be sure to ask him at, towards the end of the show. So I'll speak to you later on, Rod. Over okay, thanks very much for that introduction. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about human rights, but very specifically, we're going to be talking about the fact that America especially, but also Britain, have terrible human rights records, and the mainstream media never, ever discuss this. And so as part of what we're going to talk about today, we'll, we'll begin with a little bit of history. And so if you go back over the last um, few hundred years, you discover that many of the uh, advanced nations today have a terrible human rights record historically. And, and what you realize is that the whole of our history is actually propaganda. All of the atrocities that we've committed in the past have been whitewashed. And so all sorts of very negative things in the past are presented in a, in a positive and a misleading way. So people forget that the, the main purpose of uh, uh, someone like Christopher Columbus uh, was not just to explore. His purpose was actually to plunder the resources of uh, other countries. And he's written about very positively in all the history books. But what they don't say is that he helped to begin the transatlantic slave trade and also the genocide of the people of Haiti and ultimately the genocide of the people of uh, North America. And then there's other people in our history books like Francis Drake, uh, who's written about in a very positive way as a sailor. But actually, one of his roles was as a pirate. And that was the case for many famous uh, sailors in that, uh, that era. Their job was to actually attack shipping from other countries and steal whatever they were carrying. And then uh, again, in the history books, we read about people like Henry Morgan Stanley, who's most famous uh, for the expression, Dr. Livingston, I presume. But in fact, his... Uh, his main role uh, in, say, Central Africa, in the Congo, was helping King Leopold of Belgium actually steal the resources of the Congo, particularly the rubber. And as part of the process of stealing those resources, they would cut the hands of a large number of people in the Congo, and they would force them to sign treaties that they did not understand. So it was a huge process of imperialism and, uh, and plunder. Now, if we sort of try to progress towards the present day, it would be reasonable to say there's been a steady improvement in human rights uh, around the world in many nations, probably up until the year 2001. So if you look at the major achievements, we've eliminated slavery. I say eliminated, it does still exist on a scale that's much larger than people realize in some places. But all of the advanced nations of the world have got rid of slavery. Uh, women and minorities, in theory, uh, have equal rights. So we saw very famously in America, black people demanding equal rights uh, in, the, in the 60s and the 70s. And then uh, in Britain, a little bit further back, women demanding uh, equal rights. And so now in practice, we've still got a long way to go, but we're sort of heading in the right direction. And then the treatment of prisoners in, in many prison systems around the world is gradually uh, improving, although... Uh, Various people, such as uh, Craig Murray and so on, have reported recently that still the way we treat prisoners in Britain is pretty awful. And lots of people have written about how awful the prison system is in the United States. 
And then various international human rights organizations pointed out that throughout the 20th century, one or two countries each year would be uh, removing the death penalty, which is seen as a, as a big step forward. Unfortunately, after the 9-11 terror attacks in 2001, uh, there's been a definite reversal in the human rights situation in many nations. And you can see it particularly in America, but also in Britain, uh, but in, in many countries. And so America notoriously has set up a global network of uh, kidnapping and, uh, and torture. And so on. And we're going to talk about torture specifically later on uh, in, the, uh, in the program. OK, so if we go back to the middle of the 20th century, to the period just after World War II, a lot happened that in theory should have made quite a difference to the human rights of people around the world. So in 1947, the United Nations came up with the Universal Direct Declaration of Human Rights. And this is a surprisingly large number of rights that we are all, in theory, entitled to. And it includes things like the right to life, freedom from torture or slavery. But it, if you actually examine what was going on at the time, what happened beforehand, and what has happened since, the five most powerful nations uh, in the world, and certainly at the time in negotiating those, uh, that treaty, that would be America and Britain, and then France, Russia, and China, they actually violate many of these human rights all the time. And notoriously, of course, in, uh, with Britain and France that had very big empires, we committed a great deal of murder, rape, and torture uh, throughout our colonies. And that went on well after 1947. And then there was another important series of events between 1945 and 1949, which was the Nuremberg Trials. So this was the trials of the German leadership from World War II. And it was decided there that there were three major types of crimes that those leaders had been committing. And they were crimes against peace. That's the idea of going to war in the first place. Crimes against humanity, which is a sort of mass murder and genocide and so on. And then breaking the rules within war. Uh, but again, what you find is, of course, that America and Britain and many other uh, nations that we describe as advanced democracies regularly broke all three of those rules before World War II and have broken all three of those sets of uh, rules since World War II. And Britain and America particularly are still breaking the rules today in the 21st century, starting multiple wars and so on. And at the time, it was considered that starting a war is one of the worst human rights atrocities that any nation can carry out because it encompasses every violent act that follows. And it's probably fair to say that Britain and America have committed the five worst war crimes and human rights atrocities uh, of the 21st century. So that would be the destruction of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and with a bit of help from the Saudis, the destruction of Yemen. So all of these are monstrous human rights abuses and, and crimes and so on. So if you watch the mainstream media, you'll start to realize there's a great deal of propaganda about human rights. And there's a sort of unstated assumption when they talk about human rights, that it's what a government does within its own borders. And they're forever criticizing North Korea, Iran, China, and so on. But in fact, you also need to include what a government does outside its own borders. And these are rarely talked about. But once you start looking at human rights by a government outside its own borders, then it becomes obvious that Britain and America are the worst human rights offenders because they start so many wars, they overthrow so many governments, they support so many mass murdering dictators who've committed genocide and mass murder and so on. So uh, this is a sort of unstated assumption about human rights that we need to get beyond. We need to recognize that what our government does all over the world all counts as human rights uh, atrocities. Uh, and so war, for example, is, uh, is mass murder and it violates the basic principle of the right to life, which is one of the most important rights in the UN uh, Declaration. So if you, if you watch the media and you watch coverage of any British or American war, they show videos of precision guided weapons always hitting their targets, but they're not showing you the enormous numbers of the bodies of women and children who've been slaughtered uh, in many countries. And so very famously, Noam Chomsky, uh, the, the famous critic of uh, US foreign policy, 
states uh, in many interviews and in much of his writing that every single US president since World War II would have been found guilty of very serious crimes if they were judged by the same standards as the Germans were judged at Nuremberg. And so we have a system that sometimes called victor's justice. Basically, America and Britain are so powerful in world affairs that they're considered untouchable. So although the idea of uh, a crime of aggression invading another country is a crime in international law, that doesn't exist in US or British law. The criminals themselves have decided not to label it a crime in their own legal systems. So if we look at a couple of the worst examples of what America actually does when it's, uh, when it's operating militarily, we go back to 1991, and there were two very famous uh, or notorious uh, incidents. So remember what happened in 1991 was that Saddam Hussein and Iraq attacked Kuwait, but shortly afterwards, their military withdrew. There was a ceasefire. And uh, there was a famous incident called the Highways of Death. So large numbers of Iraqi soldiers were withdrawing from Kuwait to Iraq. And an American spokesperson, his name was Marlin Fitzwater, gave an assurance that the, the Iraqi soldiers leaving, um, the, leaving Kuwait would not be attacked by American soldiers. But in fact, on multiple parallel roads heading into Iraq, the American military attacked and slaughtered huge numbers of people. And in the, on the most famous road, there were different incidents on, uh, on each road, but in the most famous one, there were approximately 2,000 vehicles uh, in a long uh, sort of uh, queue, if you like. And the vehicles at the front were destroyed, the vehicles at the back were destroyed, and then American airplanes just flew up and down all day, blowing everything up and slaughtering everyone. And there was soft sand at the side, so the vehicles couldn't easily leave the road. So the, uh, the American pilots themselves described this as a turkey shoot, and uh, lots of uh, American soldiers turned up very soon afterwards to try to bury the bodies before reporters arrived. One or two reporters did arrive very quickly, and they witnessed what was, uh, what was going on. So that was a, a mass slaughter. The people on the ground were basically defenseless, and they'd been told they would not be attacked, but America slaughtered them anyway. And then also in 1991, America then attacked... Um, uh, Iraq further, and <coughs> there was a very famous series of events where they attached bulldozer blades to the front of their tanks and other vehicles, and they actually buried alive thousands of Iraqi soldiers, many of them conscripts, many of them trying to surrender, uh, but the, the American soldiers were not taking prisoners, and so many of them were buried alive. The rest were they had napalm, that's a sort of a gel that burns very intensely, dropped on them from the air and they burned in the trenches. And the staff of the American general, Norman Schwarzkopf, who'd been leading these attacks, estimated that between 50 and 70,000 Iraqis had been killed in approximately 70 miles of trenches. So this is mass slaughter on an enormous scale, but of course it's never mentioned by the mainstream press. Whereas if you watch mainstream press coverage of what other governments do, so let's go back to 1995 and a very famous incident called Srebrenica, which is part of uh, the former Yugoslavia. 8,000 people died in Srebrenica, and everybody in the mainstream press labels this as genocide. But in fact, this was uh, tiny. What happened in terms of the death toll and so on was tiny in comparison to the slaughters that uh, the Americans had carried out earlier. And interestingly enough, the events in Srebrenica were remarkably similar to later events in the Iraqi city of Fallujah in 2004, where American soldiers surrounded the city and then killed everybody inside. And the assault on Fallujah was so intense that it's actually been compared to the firebombing of Dresden. So some older uh, viewers will be aware that Dresden was a, a German city during World War II where um, Britain and America dropped enormous numbers of firebombs uh, onto the city and the whole city or large parts of the city were ablaze and so just a giant inferno. So Fallujah was compared with that. So this was a monster slaughter again by uh, the American military forces. But again, the mainstream media ignore this, but yet still to this day, they will talk about what happened in Srebrenica as genocide. 
So various critical writers have pointed out that once war begins, there really are no rules. The rules are broken uh, all the time. So one writer, somebody called Jean Prickmont, wrote a book called Humanitarian Imperialism. And he did a rather nice analogy. He said that discussing the rules once the war has begun is a bit like debating whether or not a brutal, violent rapist should have worn a condom. The crime is a brutal, violent rape. Similarly with war, the crime is to go to war in the first place. Inevitably, very bad things happen once a war um, has begun. But debating the rules within war also fits in with the propaganda system because it enables powerful leaders who've taken a country to war to shift the blame onto individual soldiers who might have uh, committed individual atrocities. And we saw this type of blaming going on in Vietnam, but also uh, we'll talk about one or two examples in uh, in Iraq in a few minutes. So it avoids discussion of the real culprits who, who committed the most important crimes. And what WikiLeaks pointed out when it analysed the Afghan war logs and the Iraq war logs, which it published in 2010, was that actually what those war logs show, remember these are the war logs from the American government documenting what American soldiers actually do, American soldiers are murdering people in war zones day after day after day, that actually an American occupation is simply an, an, a never-ending series of war crimes committed by the soldiers. So murder, maiming and torture was going on every day. And then the soldiers would find ways to cover it up. So if they shot um, somebody, they would plant a weapon near to them to pretend that that person was a threat to them and so on. So you start to realize that the whole concept of human rights is really just PR, it's public relations. So the British and American governments ignore human rights whenever it suits them, and they'll talk about human rights again whenever it suits them. So we support uh, insane, genocidal dictators, mass murderers, torturers all over the world when we want to. But then we use discussions about human rights to demonize anybody that America considers to be what they call an official enemy. So anybody who's not doing what the US government want them to do in terms of the way they run their country and so on. So that's a general overview of the, the sort of state of the world. Now I'm going to, the second half of the talk, talk about two specific things, two particular types of human rights atrocity. One is torture, and then the second one I'll talk about is sanctions, which many people don't recognize as a huge human rights atrocity. So if we focus first on on torture. So many writers, many philosophers have said over the years that how we treat our prisoners is quite a good measure of how civilized a nation is. And torture is considered such an extreme crime in international human rights law that it cannot be used under any circumstances, even in war. There are no exceptions. Now, most people assume that Britain and America don't do it, although people have realized, of course, that uh, America is doing it in places like Guantanamo Bay, which I'll talk about in a second. But it's important to understand that Britain used it widely throughout its colonies. And that went on right up until the 1970s, at least up until the 1970s. And then Britain pretends that it's it's not involved with doing it now, but actually it actively supports torture uh, by others and our intelligence agencies are present when torture is being carried out. So if we look at uh, Guantanamo Bay, this was the famous, uh, I'm going to use the word concentration camp because that's what it is. It's a place that's described by lawyers as a legal black hole. So um, anyone who's labelled by the US government an unlawful combatant can be taken there and it's outside of the normal US legal system, any normal jurisdiction. So pretty much the US military can do whatever they want to do to the people there. And they've treated them really, really brutally. So any normal rules about prisoners of war and how they're treated, they're all ignored. So there's widespread torture. And in fact, even when lawyers tried to get access to these people and to, to protect them, eventually they were able to. But for a long time, they were denied uh, lawyers. So there was no real sort of legal system. So 
a bedrock of normal legal systems in advanced nations, and especially in places like Britain and America, is what's called a presumption of innocent you innocence. You're presumed innocent until you are proven guilty in what's supposed to be a fair, independent court of law. But actually, what happens with something like Guantanamo Bay is they are presumed guilty even if there is no evidence of their guilt. They can just be locked up there indefinitely, and many of them have been there for close to 20 years. Now, since um, a number of them have been released, most of them have been released, eight former inmates have committed crimes of one sort or another. But in fact, people who used to work there have said, well, listen, even if they weren't criminals before they went in, we treated them so badly, it's hardly surprising that some of them have, treat, have uh, committed crimes since they came out. Now, Guantanamo Bay is not the only example of a sort of legal black hole where torture takes place. So very famously, a prison in Iraq called Abu Ghraib uh, did get into the mainstream news some years ago because some photos taken by US soldiers of them torturing prisoners uh, sort of leaked out uh, and were then uh, published and seen, seen very widely. So at Abu Ghraib, uh, prisoners were actually being tortured to death. Now, a number of soldiers have been prosecuted for this, but none of them were high level. Again, it was always about pretending that what was going on was a few wayward, low-ranking individuals. But in fact, what was happening was part of the system. The people at the top who make the decisions wanted torture to be part of how they treat uh, prisoners uh, in Iraq. And in fact, a former commander of Abu Ghraib prison estimated that probably approximately 90% of the people kept there were actually innocent of any crime. So there's a great deal of propaganda that goes with modern day torture. So they try and avoid using the word torture and they'll use a term like extraordinary rendition, which should actually be labeled kidnapping and torture. And the United States has many torture sites. They're called black sites all around the world where they can fly people to be interrogated. And again, they use terms like enhanced interrogation techniques to try to pretend that what they're talking about uh, is not uh, torture. And European and British leaders put a great deal of effort into trying to pretend that they had no knowledge of the whole system of extraordinary rendition. But actually, various people found out that uh, um, the air bases in Britain and other European countries were being used to refuel various planes uh, that were flying prisoners abroad for torture. And leaders in Britain and Europe knew full well what was going on. And in fact, we have first-hand information from the former ambassador to Uzbekistan, a man named Craig Murray, that many of you will have heard of. Uh, and the reason he lost his job as the ambassador to Uzbekistan was that he was so shocked that not only were the leaders in Uzbekistan torturing people, but actually Britain and America were actively participating in providing torture equipment to the government for them to do the torture, but also helping get people flown there to be tortured. Uh, so eventually Craig Murray uh, resigned and he's now one of the, the best bloggers and one of the most informed bloggers because he's seen things from the inside. Now, one of the justifications that some people occasionally give for torture is, well, what if there's a ticking bomb scenario? So this means you've captured a terrorist and you think there's a bomb that's going to kill lots of people and you believe that torturing that terrorist is the only way to, to find that bomb and to stop it exploding. Under those circumstances, is it acceptable to torture that person? Now, when asked this question, most people say yes, under those circumstances, it is okay to torture that person. But actually, various people have analyzed this and said, well, listen, that's a theoretical scenario. It never exists in the real world. There is never a situation where you know with certainty there is a bomb about to explode in a short period of time, and you know with certainty you have a prisoner who knows where it is and can tell you where it is and can help you stop it exploding and so on. That just never exists in the real world. And there are many, many more aspects to this that you start to realize are just complete, complete nonsense and so on. 
So what you start to realize is that torture is rarely about information. In fact, all the evidence from torture historically is that people being tortured will say whatever the torturers want. So they're always getting false confessions and so on. So in fact, torture is much more about ruling through fear. Torture occurs when governments do not have the consent of people they are governing. And so this happens a lot when the Israelis are torturing Palestinians, but it's also when American soldiers and British soldiers are occupying Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, Syria, Yemen, and so on, that uh, we see torture occurring. So uh, that's, that's torture. The other thing that I want to talk about is a specific human rights abuse is what's called as sanctions. And some people call this war by other means. So sanctions means putting limits on trade with a country to force it to change. So, for example, between 1991 and 2003, for a period of about 12 years, there were very, very strong sanctions on Iraq. And medicine was blocked, equipment to maintain basic services like sanitation systems, that was blocked as well. And huge numbers of people died. And in fact, various bits of research said what tends to happen when, when those sort of medicines aren't available and when basic services aren't available, it's the most vulnerable who suffer. And this includes children. And at one point, the sanctions on Iraq were labelled as infanticide because possibly as many as half a million children died because of those sanctions. And at different points in time, two United Nations commissioners for human rights resigned because of these sanctions. Now, Britain and America and their spokespeople always said, ah, well, it's not the sanctions that's the problem. It's what Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq, does in response to the sanctions. But in fact, in 2007, an insider in the US government, a guy called Carney Ross, gave a statement to Parliament saying, and I'm going to read out his quote, the weight of evidence clearly indicates that sanctions caused massive human suffering among ordinary Iraqis, particularly children. We, the US and UK governments, were the primary engineers and offenders of sanctions and were well aware of this evidence at the time, but we largely ignored it or blamed it on the Saddam government. We effectively denied the entire population a means to live. So that statement is very important for two reasons. Firstly, it's saying how, how dramatic the effects of sanctions can be. It really can um, kill large numbers of people. But also, He's talking about the way the British and American governments lied about how dangerous those sanctions were. And in fact, sanctions are still being implemented against multiple countries. They're being used against Syria, against Venezuela, against Iran. And in some of those countries, they are having serious consequences. So the next time you hear a, a politician appear on the news saying, oh, bad things are happening in Venezuela, we have to go and overthrow the government. The correct response is to say, actually, let's just stop the sanctions and let's stop trying to overthrow the government. And then let's work with the government to see if we can improve the situation. So it's ironic that we claim, our governments claim, that they do sanctions when other countries have terrible human rights records, when in fact, the British and American governments support many of the countries with the worst human rights record. And in fact, various leaders, various members of the US government under President Carter um, admitted that actually some countries are off limits. That means they're so important to the United States in terms of how it operates internationally that you cannot criticize them. And at the time, that included Saudi Arabia, that would still be the case today, but it also included South Korea and Taiwan, which were run by dictatorships uh, in the past. And very noticeably, America and Britain actively supported uh, a dictator called Suharto in Indonesia, who committed genocide twice, once in the 60s and once in the 90s, both times with the active support of our intelligence agencies, not only giving him weapons, but also giving him intelligence on how to find the people that he was going to slaughter. So it's important to, to recognize that any criticism our leaders make of another country's human rights record is complete nonsense. That our leaders don't care about human rights at all. They're using it when it suits them. And one of the things that people have noted over the years 
is that over and over again, uh, our government will be supporting uh, a go another government overseas that's committing atrocities, and our government will just deny all knowledge. So famously, in the 1970s, there was a dictator called Idi Amin who was slaughtering people. The British government was actively supporting him in the first part of his reign. And then perhaps most notoriously, although this is not discussed very widely, again in the 1970s, Cambodia had a government called the Khmer Rouge and a dictator called Pol Pot, and they were committing genocide. And again, Britain and America were supporting them early on uh, during the genocide. Now, I just want to finish with one slightly different point, but it's an incredibly important point. So often we talk about human rights in relation to war, and then our governments talk about human rights in terms of freedom of the press, freedom of association, and so on. But in fact, this, this latter group of rights, such as freedom of the press, to my mind, are what I would call second tier rights. So there's a much more important block of rights, which is never discussed, and these are economic rights. So in the UN Declaration, it includes the concept of security of person. Now, this doesn't just mean the right not to be shot at by an invading soldier's gun. It also means the right not to starve or die of preventable disease. So, And it means the right not to die because you can't get enough food. So it means that if we applied this idea of security of person and the idea of economic rights properly, everybody on the planet would have the right to a decent food supply, clean water, uh, medicines and a proper healthcare system to look after them. But in fact, among advanced nations, there is never any discussion about economic rights. And yet we should see them sort of right at the top of all the rights that we should be talking about. And in fact, there was a commentator in Argentina in the 70s who wrote about this. So you'll remember that Argentina was ruled by a dictatorship between 1976 and 1982. And they went around murdering and torturing, kidnapping and disappearing lots of people. But this writer, whose name is Rodolfo Walsh, wrote, these events, torture and murder, are not, however, the greatest suffering inflicted on the Argentinian people, nor the worst violation for human rights which you have committed. It is in the economic policy of this government where one discovers a greater atrocity which punishes millions of people through planned misery. And this is something that people just don't talk about nearly enough. We've actually created an, a global economic system which is intended to keep billions of people poor in other countries. And because they are so poor, many millions of people die uh, every year from easily preventable diseases, from problems with food and clean water, and so on. So these are deaths on a scale beyond any sort of combination of wars and so on. So uh, incredibly serious violations of human rights that we should be talking about all the time. And in fact, in future presentations, I hope we'll get the opportunity to talk more about the international uh, economic system. Now, normally I'd finish there, but I think it's worth just adding a final comment about how this all relates to uh, Russia and Ukraine. So one of the things that uh, I don't think I've seen any other commentator talk about this seriously, but one or two people have sort of hinted about it, is that older viewers will remember that in the 1990s, Western economic advisors wrecked Russia's economy. So its output dropped by about half. Um, life expectancy fell through the floor, fell by amount an amount that you don't normally see outside of wartime, and about 70 million people descended into poverty. And this is because we were forcing them to adopt an economic system that could not possibly work for them uh, at the time. And so we completely ignored their economic rights. Now, people in Russia, and Vladimir Putin particularly, I suspect, are well aware that America would very much like to do this all over again to Russia and the Russian people if, if it ever got the chance. And that making uh, Ukraine a part of NATO is a step towards one day attempting to do that again. And this is one of the reasons why the Russian people and why 
Putin and the Russian leadership are so concerned about what might happen in the future and why one of the reasons why they are taking the actions they are taking in Ukraine to make sure that never happens again. Okay, I think that's probably a good time to stop for tonight and open up for uh, Q&A. Hi, Rod. Thanks very much for that. Um, if you do have a question for Rod, please pop it in the chat and uh, we'll pick it up and we'll ask him. Um, we've only got a couple of questions in tonight. People were, as always, absolutely enthralled by what you're uh, you're telling everybody. Um, you know, it's absolutely amazing. Um, just before we, we do go on to questions, there was an article that um, I remember from quite a few years back now. It's going back to November 2010. And it's about our um, opposition leader, um, Sir Keir Starmer QC, when he was the director of public prosecutions. And um, he managed to get off an MI5 officer um, be, uh, who was accused of mistreatment of a UK resident called uh, Binyan Mohammed in Pakistan in 2002. Um, it stated um, that at the heart of the allegations made by Mr Mohammed that the British security intelligence agencies knew that he had been mistreated and tortured. Um, Mr Mohammed was arrested in Karachi in April 2002 and taken to a detention facility. There, CIA officers questioned him about alleged links to terrorism. But he was then subjected to what the Court of Appeal in the UK later described as at the very least, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. This included threats, sleep deprivation and shackling, part of a CIA-approved plan to use harder interrogation techniques against key suspects. On 17th of May, an MI5 officer using the name John conducted a three-hour interview with Mr Mohammed at the detention facility. Mr Mohammed says that during his interview, uh, which was also attended by a US agent, he was told that he could be removed from the facility and taken somewhere else to be tortured by, quote, the Arabs. But in his defence in the High Court, witness B, um, who was a, an MI5 officer, denied the allegations, saying that he told Mr Mohammed he could help if he was persuaded that the detainee was being truthful. The CIA later flew Mr Mohammed to Morocco, where, according to court papers, torture included cuts to his genitals. In a statement, MI5's Director General Jonathan Evans said, I'm delighted that after a thorough police investigation, the Crown prosecuted prosecution service has concluded that witness B has no case to answer in respect of his interviewing of Mr Binyam Mohammed. Um, so um, it was um, it was the Keir Starmer QC who was the director of publication uh, public prosecutions at that time and he said there wasn't enough evidence there was there was insufficient evidence to prosecute um the said um MI5 officer um i i think that that story is shocking that's on on the um, bbc website by the way um you know bbc news um so you know it is common knowledge it's no conspiracy theory you know that this is this is allegedly what happened um, I just wondered if you had any comments on that, Rod. Yeah, so uh, so my wife is um, becoming a bit of an expert in uh, a lot of this torture stuff. So she works very closely with one or two people who devoted the last, well, best part of 20 years of their lives to trying to help people at Guantanamo Bay. So this, this is uh, sometimes lawyers, sometimes it's researchers documenting what's going on uh, and so on. And many of them have come into contact with uh, the British detainees at Guantanamo Bay uh, and talk to them about their experiences, uh, but also um, people who were um, tortured elsewhere. And the truth is absolutely shocking. So if you, if you listen to American officials talking about these interrogation techniques, they're pretty much saying to people, oh, well, if it doesn't kill them, we don't call it torture. That's almost their definition, that, it, um, that torture has to be uh, pain that, that that sort of kills them. But in fact, they have actually killed people. This is the interesting thing, that nobody really doubts that this is going on. And 
as far as I can tell, nobody seriously investigating this doubts that um, officers from British intelligence are present to do questioning when this is happening. And the idea, of course, that an MI5 officer is there to offer assistance is complete nonsense. You know, that is not their role. Their role is to do the questioning. And um, all the evidence is, is very clear that the British government condones torture, whatever it states publicly. What Craig Murray has said about uh, Uzbekistan, what's happened in uh, other countries and so on, the, the evidence is overwhelming that the British government is quite happy to go along uh, with torture. And the problem, of course, of trying to deal with this in a court of law is that it's almost impossible to prove unless you get a very, very high level whistleblower who was themselves part of the torture system, which, which does happen occasionally in America. There are one or two former CIA whistleblowers coming forward. But uh, in the UK, uh, I haven't uh, come across that, although there, there may there may be some. Um, it's very, very difficult to prove. It becomes the word of the torture victim versus the, the word of the people who were there doing the torture. And, and of course, the people doing the torture are always going to say, well, no, it wasn't me, Gov. And then you also have the problem that because a lot of this relates to alleged terrorism offences, that the courts operate very secretively. They don't open, operate openly and transparently so everyone can see what's going on and everyone can report on it. Much of the time, what's happening is happening in, in secret session. They don't want the identity of the MI5 or MI6 or CIA officer to be made public and so on. So it's just impossible uh, to know. And I think uh, the British intelligence services particularly have a, an amazing track record of being able to cover up their crimes. And it's very, very difficult to get really good information about what goes on. Whereas with the CIA, there's a lot more evidence has come out over the years about the, the crimes that they commit. That may just be because it's a much bigger organization. Um, who knows? But the, the sort of... Uh, I, I sometimes talk about it in the same way that the mafia use the concept of omerta, that they keep silent. Nobody says anything. Um, and I think that happens a lot in uh, in the British intelligence services. Mm, definitely. Um, can we bring Lizzie in now, please, Gaz? Hey, Hello. Lizzie. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hi. Um, well, everybody's been that? engrossed. Everybody's been engrossed, of course. And um, there, there are a few questions. Uh, let's have a look and see what we've got. We've got, um, I wonder, is there an intellectual satisfaction or sense of, say, a perverse feeling of dominant thrill to the acts that have been discussed here tonight? Um, do you think that the elite echelons and trickling down to the troops, are they, are they getting some kind of thrills out of torturing and you know, doing this to these people? Well, so that would be a fascinating question to ask a sort of group of psychologists and, in fact, to ask people who've done it, because I think there are people that you could interview who've, who've done it. But I have no doubt if you um, go back to the Abu Ghraib um, photographs and there were various uh, sort of statements that were made public by the people who participated in that, and they clearly did get a power trip. And it, this is one of the interesting things that I talk about with people a lot when I teach them the sort of the, the expression that I consider to be the most important in all of human history is power corrupts. Now, a lot of the time I'm talking about the people at the highest levels who send armies to war and manipulate the economic system. And stuff. But it, it applies at all levels. And you see it in the local council, but it applies very specifically in the military where people have prisoners and they have the opportunity to be brutal towards those prisoners. And a lot of people really enjoy that experience. And they like inflicting pain. And it's this complete sense of control and power you have over other human beings. And so some psychologists uh, and researchers have written about this, that actually when a country allows torture at all, it brutalizes the country. It brutalizes every single person who comes into contact with it. It's not just the people on the receiving end who are brutalized, but it actually brutalizes the people doing it as well. It kind of changes them. It really screws them up. 
And this is uh, another reason why it's really important that we, we have governments that do not allow torture under any circumstances. You know, once you go down that route, you start to realize that you say we only do torture, let's say, under very specific circumstances, but then actually, well, you need to train some torturers if you're ever going to use it at all. How do you train torturers? They need to practice on somebody if they're going to be effective. So what do you do? You then find excuses to do torture elsewhere, and it becomes more and more widespread and so on. And the whole process gets abused, and people at a local level, you know, commanders at a particular camp or something, decide that they have the right to use it or they have a need to use it. And, and then individual soldiers and so on will, will use it. And, and so it's really important that we just don't go down that route uh, at all. All right, Duff. Well, I, I was trying to put myself in a place of, uh, of being put in that position where I had to choose whether to hurt somebody else. And I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I would have to die myself. I was just going to say, there is a specific thing that psychologically most people accept, most researchers accept that probably most human beings can do really brutal stuff under the right circumstances. And so most parents can imagine that if circumstances involved trying to protect your child, and you had to do something brutal to protect your child, most parents probably would. They wouldn't just kind of stand there and do nothing and let their child be harmed and so on. So most people recognize that, that humans have a capacity for violence if the circumstances are right. And I think one of the things about the military is the whole purpose of basic training is to indoctrinate people into seeing other human beings as less than human and then yeah. seeing them as people. It's all right to kill them. It's all right to be brutal towards them and to uh, to talk to them and so on. And so the system actually brings forward uh, the sort of worst parts of our psychology. Wow. Well, another question. I heard that the torture carried out in Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay was literally taken from the TV programme 24 as they weren't getting any answers because people were innocent. Is this true? I haven't researched the link between 24 and the torture. Um, it, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if an individual saw something on TV and thought, oh, I can use that. I think torture techniques go back thousands of years. You know, they've been using thumb screws and all sorts of things over the years. And many of those historical torture techniques were devised to make it look as if there were no signs of torture on somebody. So that's why you twist limbs and so on. And you do all these brutal things. So I don't know that people necessarily need a TV show to, to show them how to torture. I think the CIA has detailed training manuals, which go back, I think, probably to the 1950s, about how to do torture. And they then trained people in South and Central America and death squads and torture squads in how to do it. So I suspect that that's where most of it um, came from originally. Wow. And um, how much influence, in your opinion, do Zionists have over USA's foreign policy? I'm not so quite sure where that fits in your in your talk it's not specific to tonight and you know i try to keep the talks quite quite specific yeah. but uh, this is something that noam chomsky does talk about and he says he uses the very specific phrase that's the tail wagging the dog you know at the end of the day israel depends on the united states to be kind of what the, what israel is is today without the go-ahead from the united states it couldn't do what it does so mm. Whilst there is a great deal of lobbying in both America and Britain by representatives of the Israeli government, it's definitely the case that the American government ultimately calls the shots. I think it was in connection to um, some stuff that Scott Ritter has been doing. Um, I think uh, if you're on social media a lot, you will have seen Scott Ritter, who is a, a former uh, weapons inspector, uh, former US Marine. Um, he's, do he's done all sorts of stuff. He's worked at the very, very top um, of the military and with the top generals. And he's been putting his uh, opinion out on what's actually going on in Ukraine at the moment. 
Um, and um, I think it was in connection with something that Scott Ritter um, has talked about in relation to uh, Ukraine and uh, the nationalist um, aspect that's happening there um, and the influence that uh, Zionism has, has had on that. And of course, Scott Ritter's still being silenced uh, by by many, you know, with his with the smear against or the allegations against him of uh, of misbehaviour. So, you know, you've got to be very careful about um, what you say and who you say it about. For example, we've got a question here from uh, somebody on Unity News watching tonight. Um, has the Trilateral Commission anything to do with this? Are you uh, talking about Starmer? Uh, so I can't comment specifically on the relationship between the Trilateral Commission and Starmer. So I think he's a member of another organisation called the Atlantic Council that I've come across. But it's not an area that I'm an expert in. So um, it's probably best if we leave that. I personally um, couldn't well, give the, a good answer. The, the Trilateral the trilateral commission the trilateral commission is an organization that is comprised of um corporate people and um and um intelligence agencies intelligence agency staff and um i don't know whether starmer was on uh, went on to the trilateral commission in his role as the director of the CPS or whether he was invited onto the trilateral commission um, in order to possibly become um, an infiltrator into the Labour Party. Unfortunately, we will never know. Um, you can only speculate on these things. But the Trilateral Commission itself is um, is one of these um, organisations that are um, not transparent. We don't really know what, what they do, um, but it is a combination of, uh, of corporate people and um, you know um, intelligence agencies from, from here and from the US. Yeah. Well, and uh, we've got a number of people, including myself, uh, finding the relationship between sanctions imposed on other countries and sanctions that we impose here on people who are on benefits. Um, people who are on benefits are regularly uh, sanctioned for up to three months, six months, nine months, a year, two years, three years. Um, for these lengths of time, they are allowed no money whatsoever so they are made homeless they are made destitute they are made suicidal um so far we have we the last registered data that we received said that over one hundred and fifty thousand people have died in the uk because of the sanctions by the department of uh, work and pensions the dwp but though we have no freedom of information recently it's estimated since the UN uh, sent their envoy across to investigate us. Um, they said that it was it was estimated to be over 300,000 people have been killed by sanctions in this country, mostly vulnerable and disabled. Do you think that it is a case of um, weeding out the the unfit only the fit survive what's the, only the strong survive is it called do you think it's a case of that or do you think it's just a case of absolute greed so i think it's um it's mostly a question of the people at the top just not caring about the bottom half of the population at all and deliberately trying to structure our society and our economy in, in a way where even the, the, the neediest people uh, in society have to fend more and more for themselves uh, in circumstances where the, the people making these rules know full well that many people will not be able to survive. And they just don't care. And I feel it's there's a huge problem with um, democracy in Britain, America, but also it's, it's happening more and more in European um, countries where politicians no longer seem to, to think that they have any responsibility at all for the whole population. 
they see themselves as only having a responsibility towards the people who funded their election campaigns and so on. And it's this this kind of one percent at, at the top, and then it's um, the, the next few percent who are who are very wealthy and so on, who do very well out of it. But more and more, we're seeing inequality data increasing all the time, and um, people at the bottom are finding it harder and harder. And I remember watching the film I, Daniel Blake, just a few months ago. It's been out for a few years, but this was about what it's really like for people on the benefit system. And it is absolutely horrific. And it's, you know, it's to really create a system which deliberately is like a mild form of torture, you know, putting more and more stress on the neediest people, I just think is a horrible thing for our politicians to do. And again, it's this corruption through power and so on. I want to, uh, I just want to link it back to a, to a point because we were talking about sanctions internationally earlier. And of course, uh, a few of the mainstream papers are talking about the sanctions on Russia in relation to uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Now, as far as I can tell, and I've been looking at the commentary by one or two international economists who are quite, quite critical of the United States government and so on, as far as they can tell, these sanctions are having very very little impact on Russia, that actually Russia is finding ways to trade in its own currency, has very good relationship with China, who can probably um, buy up anything that Russia really wants to sell. In fact, the countries that are going to suffer because of the sanctions are probably going to be European countries who are not using the kind of oil, uh, the gas pipeline between uh, Russia and, and Germany and so on. And well, the, sorry, go on. And Africa. And Africa, who get their supply of wheat from Russia, they they are already suffering really badly. Starvation, you know, the the price of wheat has gone up, doubled, tripled, and people Absolutely. just simply can't afford to eat. Yeah. So any country that needs to import on a large scale either energy or certain basic food staples, all of which are produced by Russia and or Ukraine, uh, is going to suffer because of the increased uh, price rises. And a number of commentators don't think this is accidental on the part of US foreign policy, that this is a deliberate strategic move um, by the United States government, knowing that probably America won't suffer that much, and not really caring that Russia can find ways around it, but actually wanting to strengthen links between America and Europe by saying, hey, Russia's this scary, scary bad guy. All you people in Europe, you need to get joining NATO. And we're starting to see more European countries talking about joining NATO, but also saying to European countries, hey, you need more and more weapons to protect yeah. yourself against us. And there's huge discussions about more and more weapons and so on. So it's a strategy by America. This appears to be working to frighten European people at the moment. Wow. Well, that, that's it on our questions. I mean, everybody is just commenting how fantastic, you know, that your knowledge is, your depth and breadth of knowledge. And thank you so much, Rod, for, uh, for, for sharing it with us. My pleasure. There's one last question here, Rod, before we go okay, um, yeah. from uh, Shirley, uh, 2010 Somerset. She says, is the West going to have to change? It feels like we, uh, we're we on a turning point or we're at a turning point. That's a really good question. In fact, I was discussing that with somebody just the other day. And first, I should point out before I answer that, I am notoriously bad about predicting the future. But it does really feel that the world is changing, that actually Asian countries led by China, but also Russia, perhaps India. We're seeing interesting events in Pakistan where Imran Khan may have been overthrown, but there's mass public protests uh, because they're supporting him. And so again, which would be another American backed coup, just like the attempted one in Venezuela. So Pakistan was trying to form stronger links with Russia and China and the Americans didn't like that. So there's a lot going on. I think the balance of power is shifting. One of the things that's always been important is the role of the American dollar as what's called the world's reserve currency. Now that Russia's trading energy in rubles, that is suddenly changing. I think America is losing its power, but it'll take a while to do so, and the transition could be very unpleasant. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and I think it all ties into um, they, they wanting to change us onto um, a digital currency. So maybe that's something we could talk about in a future episode. I want well, to thank everybody. Rod would have to uh, then research uh, digital currencies. And he's already <laughs> said that's a whole other world. Well, maybe we can get somebody on who uh, who's already done the research on that. I want to thank everybody for joining us this evening in the chat. It's uh, it's been brilliant again this evening to uh, to talk to everybody. Um, don't forget to leave us a like, as it really does help this channel to grow. It enables the algorithms on YouTube um, to uh, make us seen by more people. So please leave us a like, uh, leave us a comment. Um, we do always read comments that are left um, that also helps us and subscribe to the channel please share it with your friends and your family and uh, let, let's try and get this uh, let's get this movement growing so I want finally I want to thank Rod once again uh, for his uh, knowledge and uh, his presentation tonight and to also Lizzie and Gaz in the background there thank you very much and we'll see you all next week good night yeah. Bye.